Hello and welcome to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. I'm BHE Digital Managing Editor Tom Valentino, and today I am joined by Dr. Carolyn Carney, the President of Behavioral Health and Chief Medical Officer at Magellan Health. Dr. Carney, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tom. I am delighted to be here today. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, and uh, we're delighted to have you on. So as we move into 2024, New Year's resolutions aren't just for personal goals. A lot of forward-thinking organizations are looking at implementing initiatives that can improve their operations. And uh, one area of focus in particular for behavioral health care providers is measurement of care. So to that end, what changes do you foresee with regards to measurement of care in behavioral health in 2024? Um, I think this is an incredibly important area in behavioral health right now. But I want to step back a little and talk about measurement-based care or measurement-informed care in general. It's something that's been very challenging for behavioral health to get its arms around. If I were a clinician taking care of a patient with diabetes or hypertension, I know there are certain targets I need to hit that are going to be pretty universal across the population. But when I get into behavioral health, there are such a myriad of diagnoses and needs, it's very challenging to say something like using a measurement of depression, really common in the United States, the PHQ measure, only captures really the group of people who have depression. and does not capture the group of individuals who have the myriad of other diagnoses or other diagnoses even complicating the depression. And so it's been quite a challenge to say in behavioral health, because there's no biomarker, that this screener is the one we're going to use for all things for everyone. And so while we're wrapping our arms around it, the places where most organizations are starting is with using the PHQ, the patient health questionnaire for following up depression or the the GAD as it's commonly known for anxiety disorders. I think a lot of organizations today already are using these as a baseline. Many clinical organizations use these to do follow-up care or population health screening. I think the biggest change is we're going to see these measures out and outcomes of those treatment episodes incorporated into value-based treatment and into overall measurement of quality of care for individuals coming out of clinics or institutions. What factors do you see driving or affecting these changes that uh, that you're seeing? Um, Is it internal factors within organizations? Are there external stakeholders that you know, have uh, have thoughts on where things are headed as well? I'll wear a few of my different hats when I answer this question. So I'm also a clinician. And as a clinician, I'm responsive in the setting I practice to HRSA, one of the federal agencies that mandates that our clinic do PHQs on everyone who comes in. So as a clinician and a medical director in that setting, I want to make sure our practitioners are using it and not only just measuring it, but actually paying attention to what the results tell us. So we get a first one and at least a second one to ensure that our patients are getting better. Wearing kind of an innovator hat 
in the collaborative care model, these kind of measures are absolutely essential to that model to ensure that evidence-based care is being delivered. And we can follow people over time to ensure that they are getting better or if they're getting worse when a change in therapy or treatment is really needed. And so from that perspective, the tools that we're talking about in measurement-informed care is a critical cornerstone of the collaborative care model. As a payer, I want to know that I'm getting value for my members. I want to know that if I send a member to a provider, that member, that individual is getting better over time, that the spend of my client's dollars is not on therapy that's not going to really support and assist in treating that member in making the changes and getting the support that they need. So I would ask my providers to use that, the provider network to use that as a way of informing quality, as a way of informing change in the health of my population as a surveil, more of a, of a surveillance topic. And then finally, as also a payer, but perhaps as a provider again, or a large provider group, I would like to use these measures in a value-based purchasing context where I either reimburse based on improvement in care, or as a provider, I get paid more because I can assure you that the members in my care are getting better. So what do you see as being the biggest challenges that providers are facing right now um, as they look to improve the ways in which they're measuring the quality of their treatment services. If you've got payers who, you know, want to see results and, um, you know, some of these other, uh, you know, key stakeholders that are, that, that you've discussed here. And I know you got into some of those challenges um, with regards specifically to behavioral health, but what are some of the other uh, issues that uh, will affect uh, providers on this front? Um Depends on the topic and the kind of provider. So like I alluded to earlier, it's easier if there is a biomarker that I can follow, a blood pressure number or a hemoglobin A1C number. And those kinds of things are pretty routinely collected and put into electronic medical records today. So it's easier to track those numbers and to find out you know, what the trend is. In behavioral health, you have to think about the also myriad of providers. I'll have psychologists, I'll have LCSWs, I'll have psychiatrists. The behavioral health care might be getting done in primary care. And so what happens in that setting are two things. Many behavioral health providers don't have electronic medical records. They still chart on paper or chart in systems where you can't easily go in and grab uh, numbers or grab screeners. The second is many of them don't necessarily believe in the use of a screener for also those reasons I talked about earlier. They may be seeing a patient for an acute social need, a crisis in their life where a screener doesn't really relate. So there is pushback from clinicians about, you know, that that doesn't apply to me or it doesn't apply to my patient population. Um, the next is a big one. Who's accountable? If I have a primary care doctor who started an antidepressant and a psychologist who is seeing the individual for therapy, who's accountable for the improvement? Who as, say, the insurer or the government agency or whoever it might be measuring that care says, Dr. Carney did a good job or Dr. Carney didn't do a good job, the other doctor did. 
How does that work and how does that accountability come into play? That's one where the field is really grappling a lot. And then the final one is just going in and getting the records in the behavioral health space. There's a lot of concern about release of information related to behavioral health and keeping that information confidential. So many providers are reluctant to share based on what their understanding about protecting their individual patient data looks like. You, know, you had mentioned that um, a lot of organizations are still not using EHRs in this field, and there's a reluctance on the, the part of some providers to uh, use screeners. Do you anticipate either of those things starting to change a little bit as we move forward in 2024? And are there other developments that we should be looking uh, for regarding diagnosis and treatment and behavioral health coming in the next six to 12 months? I do. So let me take the first part of that question. When the High Tech Act was first passed, that really targeted getting electronic health records, medical records into the hands of the primary care infrastructure of the country. And behavioral health providers were entirely looked over. They did not get the kind of financial supports and implementation supports to move into that electronic era. Thankfully, federal agencies are seeing that, recognizing it, and looking at ways to support primary care, not, I'm sorry, to support behavioral health care providers into getting into the digital world if they haven't already. Um, we'll see that already in some larger systems like community behavioral health centers. They may already do it because their state may require it. But the onesie twosie providers, it's been much harder to make that change in. As you know, regard to using the tools, I think more and more providers, as they get familiar with the tools, as they go through training and the tools start becoming an essential part of the knowledge base that new trainees coming into the market will be using, I think we'll start seeing more and more adoption of it. And particularly if state agencies, federal agencies, the clinic you work for, the payer who pays you will require that, it will have to you know, change over time. And I think, well, we're past the age of early adopters and we're now in more of the mainstream of uh, practices and individuals beginning to adopt those kind of screeners. And we have to remember that there are a myriad of screeners, hundreds of screeners for different behavioral health clinicians and the types of conditions that they're caring for. So picking and choosing may be one way of that kind of adoption also by not forcing just a single screener, but showing that an individual is doing measurement-based care of some sort in their practice. Um, with regard to diagnosis in behavioral health, I think there are some things that are in front of us. There is a lot of work being done on the hunt for the kind of biomarker, whether that is using EEG information, functional MRI information, genomic information, a combination of all of those in bringing together the association of what we see, say, in a genomic evaluation as it relates to or has an association with predicting suicidality, addiction to opioids, uh, the development of, say, bipolar disorder or something where that is worked out more, where there are clearer associations between what we see um, and an analysis of one's DNA um, and the risk for mental illness. 
there's nothing that's diagnostic today. So say like in Huntington's disease, there's a diagnostic finding. We don't have anything like that in behavioral health, but we do have some stronger associations with that. So if that is a cost-effective tool going forward, still being studied, I think that's something we'll use. There's been controversy about using it in treatment um, in predicting the outcome of a use of antipsychotics or antidepressants. And many clinicians have taken that on. Others still don't believe that the science is worthy of getting, you know, that to be a covered benefit across the board or something that's even useful. As a clinician, I see it as very useful. And the provider group that I oversee, we use it in our clinic. As a scientist, if I strictly read the, you know, strict letter of the law of the scientific um, information, there are terrific associations, but there's not necessarily cost effectiveness of tools like that. And here's why. If the genetic test costs X number of dollars, but the treatments, generic in particular, are a smaller number of dollars, it's going to be hard to prove cost effectiveness of that tool. So I think we need to study, we need to go down a path of using those tools for suspected conditions. Um, for instance, if I have a young person who has their first episode of psychosis, I want to know which medication is going to be the most tolerable, has the greatest you know, likelihood of working for that individual and keeping them compliant on that medication. So it may be more worthwhile to do studies targeting specific populations like first episode psychosis, um, but some really cool work being done in that field. All right. Uh, fantastic perspectives. Uh, appreciate you uh, taking the time. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention that we haven't touched on yet? I think that uh, it's really important and we, we can't not mention a couple of things, access and availability of care and also the continuing rise of suicide uh, and suicidality in our populations. Earlier in the pandemic, during the pandemic of younger people, and now we're seeing that in older uh, people, elders, uh, and ages beyond 65. So I think the data coming out of the CDC are very telling as we, we look at those trends. We're doing some unique interventions at Magellan in this area, and I know other companies are as well. But we're using on the front end predictive models to find individuals who are most likely uh, to have an attempt or to have an episode of care that warrants a hospitalization to really target care management and digital monitoring of those folks over time. And our preliminary data are already showing a positive response to that with a lower use of higher levels of care. Uh, like inpatient services and a better use of outpatient services, exactly what we want to see in a population like that. And our early data are showing high levels of acceptability among our care managers and among patients at the time of discharge of giving them a tool to say, you can use this, you can use this tool to, you know, to communicate with us, to follow over time, to push messages out, to send messages of affirmation of an evidence-based practice to members and to help align those members into getting care earlier if something trips that they're not doing as well. Um, that's where a, a path that we've taken 
as well as you know, training all of our folks and maintaining our accreditation um, in suicide programs. I know other companies are doing that as well. And I, I you know, want to give the strongest endorsement that we need to continue to do this as a healthcare entity, you know, just not just Magellan, but across all entities. And the other is that, you know, addressing access and availability, it is going to continue to be a challenge. Two things have happened. Um, one is a really good thing. It's the reduction of stigma. And so more and more people are wanting to come into care. But the models that showed that we're going to a nadir in the number of available providers into 2025 are now getting redone because those were based on pre-pandemic levels of care. And now that more people are coming into care, I fear that we're going to see even a bigger delta between those individuals wanting or needing care and the number of providers we have. So it continues to speak to the need for using the right kind of triage to the right level of service and keeping people in care to the right lengths of time um, so that we can really get the right care to people when they need it. Yeah, workforce uh, challenges are certainly a, a hot topic. Uh, unfortunately, are probably something that's going to be a continuing issue uh, for the foreseeable future. But uh, you know, it's good that uh, something that the field's addressing head on, and uh, hopefully uh, some progress can be made on that front. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Carney of Magellan Health, thank you so much for taking the time uh, for uh, speaking with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate the time. Have a great day. All right. As a reminder, you could subscribe to the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast on Apple Podcasts and most other podcast listening platforms. Past episodes of the show are also available on the BHE website, which is behavioral.net. Our thanks once again to Dr. Carolyn Carney of Magellan Health. I'm Tom Valentino, and this has been the Behavioral Healthcare Executive Podcast. Thank you.